My name is Dr. Kimberly Wiley. I teach organizational leadership and nonprofits for the Department of Family, Youth, and Community Sciences at the University of Florida. In this podcast, I offer lessons from our course readings to support knowledge building and skill mastery in nonprofit leadership and management. In this episode, we build on our previous episode about emotional labor and effective leadership. And so we're going to explore the concepts of vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, and burnout. If we don't take care of ourselves when we are working around trauma as employees, as volunteers in these nonprofit and public organizations, we risk experiencing vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, and burnout. So let's talk more about what these concepts are and how we can avoid experiencing compassion fatigue, and burnout. Vicarious trauma is just what it sounds like. It's like you're experiencing trauma that someone else has gone through. It's not your own trauma, but you've observed it, witnessed it, been told about the trauma, heard about it. You experience it with them or in addition to this other person or animal or even the environment around us. Vicarious traumatization is secondary traumatic stress. So you can use the term vicarious or secondary. And it's been defined as the natural consequent uh, behaviors and emotions resulting from the knowledge about traumatizing events uh, experienced by a significant other. uh, or And that was the definition in 1995 by Figley. But it's been expanded for the workplace and for those who work in areas uh, relating to trauma. So this could be sexual assault services, child abuse services, or it could be something like we talked about in the uh, Halloween episode where we explored uh, dark tourism. So in dark tourism, these are places where we're, we're taking someone through a traumatic experience. It could be something for fun, like a ghost tour, Or it could be something very uh, somber and serious, like a Holocaust museum or other museums that relate to trauma that others have experienced. And so vicarious trauma is a stress resulting from helping or wanting to help someone else. And it's a change or distortion of the person professional's perception of the world as a result of hearing others' stories and stressful life events. So in other words, when a client discloses the details of abuse, injustice, or general suffering they have survived, you may become overwhelmed by their story and your innate desire to help, yet feel helpless. The negative effects of secondary exposure to a traumatic event are nearly identical to those of primary exposure. So exposure of traumatization event is experienced by one person, and then it becomes a traumatizing event for a second person. Now, when this happens, and you're in a position where this happens time and time again, maybe you're a trauma nurse or a paramedic, and you're seeing trauma after trauma, or you're a sexual violence um, responder, and you're hearing trauma after trauma, or maybe you're dealing with child abuse, these stories can pile up, and they can have an impact on our well-being, both our mental health and our physical health, overall, just our well-being. And it turns into what's called compassion fatigue. 
So once you observe or hear devastating stories of the experiences of the children or adults you work with, your capacity to care and to be empathetic or trusting can be jeopardized. So once you are at a point where it's causing harm to your well-being, it can be reflected in your work and make you less effective in your position. If your job is to respond to folks that are experiencing uh, trauma in their lives and you you have been impacted, you may not be able to serve them in the same in a, an effective way. So some of the signs of compassion fatigue are feeling overwhelmed, fear and pain and suffering similar to the people that you help, intrusive thoughts, nightmares, avoidance, hyperarousal, uh, change in relationships to yourself, your family, or your friends. It's hard to hear about trauma and then just go home and get back to life as if nothing happened. It takes practice, practice and practice and skill to be able to to go to work every day and then separate yourself and then go home uh, and act like nothing happened when you're with your family or your friends, your loved ones. So it You have to have practices in your life to help avoid that. So signs of significant impairment can be depression, cynicism. When you go to work and you're hearing a story and you begin to blame the person for their own trauma, their own victimization. If you hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened to you. You become cynical. Oh, it's the same story I hear every time. You become less engaged in your work. Uh, You can also experience a loss of vitality, insomnia, detachment, loss of intimacy with friends and family. So that's when you know you need to get some help. So at that point, you can go to your boss. You can go to a counselor. Uh, You can go to someone that you trust in your organization to talk about these things. If you have been performing emotional labor, Uh, for a period of time, and it turns into compassion fatigue. It's very important to get help before you get to the point where it turns into depression and and into ways that could harm the people that you serve. So returning to the concept of affective leadership, remember affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, not effective. So in your role as an affective leader, overseeing those that are performing emotional labor, there are some signs and some clues that you can look for in your staff that you're supervising or your volunteers to see if they are experiencing compassion fatigue. Signs might be substance abuse, erosion of their spiritual beliefs, maybe before they were very spiritual or engaged in their uh, religious services, um, and then they become less engaged. Uh, Physical symptoms with their health maybe some somatic illnesses, or uh, you, you can see exhaustion, maybe bags under their eyes because they're not sleeping. Spending less time with service participants is a big one. If they're just providing the basic services and then getting away from the people that you serve very quickly and avoiding being around them, that could be a sign of compassion fatigue. Being late and absent from work, making professional error, errors, uh, one is being hypercritical of others, criticizing everything around them, and nothing's right, nothing's ever right. Some, something is always wrong uh, and needs to be changed, and it's never the individual, it's always someone else. 
depersonalizing the clients is a big one where we no longer see them as people, but we kind of see them as objects kind of moving through our services. Uh, so a family um, where child abuse is present, just kind of going in, providing the services, calling it a case rather than an individual child. We might see a lot of sarcastic or cynical comments about service participants or about the organization itself, and then poor record keeping. So these are signs that could be related to compassion fatigue. You know, they could be related to something else. But if we see these, a number of these all lined up, and this one staff member is experiencing these things, it might be worth exploring. Having a conversation with the individual or others uh, in that space, we talk to the staff in that department about how they're all experiencing uh, their work at that time. It's important to address this because employees can become burnout. Once they reach the experience compassion fatigue, it can turn to burnout, which is really negative for the organization and for the individual and the people that you serve. So burnout is a degree of which dislocation between what people are and what they have to do. It manifests itself in the form of chronic exhaustion, cynical detachment, and feelings of ineffectiveness. And it results from the gradual process of loss during which the mismatch between the needs of the person and the demands of the job grow even greater. These folks are working extra hours and they're still not able to keep up. Um, you see them, they're ex physically exhausted, yet they're there um, late at night. Maybe we're seeing signs of poor performance. Uh, and even though they're working long hours, they're still not able to get the job done. So we want to avoid the point where we reach burnout because it's costly for the organization because folks around this individual who's burnout have to pick up the slack. Um, it might be harmful for the service recipient because uh, the employee or the volunteer might miss important things. If we have a guardian ad litem who has a lot of cases that they're working on in the courts and they miss an important thing that's going on in that child's life, they can put the child in more danger. So a burnout employee is a danger uh, to themselves, the organization, and the people that they serve. So it's really important as an effective leader to keep an eye out on the signs of vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue so you can intervene before things become harmful. So what do we do uh, in our line of employment if we are experiencing compassion fatigue or as a leader, our employees and volunteers are experiencing compassion fatigue or burnout? What do we do? Well, there's a concept called compassion satisfaction. So this describes the positive benefits that individuals derive from working with traumatized or suffering persons and to what extent people feel successful in doing so. So if they feel like they're making an a difference in the person's life, or they feel like they're helping that person process their trauma, they're being good trauma stewards, like we talked about in the previous episode, um, or they're just helping that person get through the different steps they need to, to get through, and they're feeling positive about it, this can lead to compassion satisfaction. This has to do with the quality of a professional's interaction with their colleagues and their satisfaction with their work. Compassion satisfaction might mitigate the adverse effects of burnout and compassion fatigue. Now, people may be compassion fatigued, 
we turn that into a verb. Maybe compassion fatigued by the work while also feeling the positive benefits from it. So high compassion satisfaction could result from seeing one's job as a calling, as an internal belief that the individual is meant to do this work, despite the many hardships involved. And past research has shown that support from fellow workers and confidence in one's abilities to serve survivors effectively results in advocates staying in their position. You gotta think about ways of how fellow workers can support each other and how you can build confidence in one's ability to do their work. You can do that through training, through, we used to do staffing meetings at the beginning of shifts and ends of shifts so that we could talk about the cases and talk about how they were progressing and the things that we needed to do. And having that open line of communication gave me confidence uh, in my work. Um, taking good case notes and sharing those case notes gave me confidence in what I was doing because I could see the progress of the individual or individuals I was serving. So one must kind of balance acting like a human being, but not reacting like a human being. It's really tough. I've been in situations where I wanted to cry with the survivor for the trauma that they experienced. I wanted to sit at the desk and sob with them because what they had experienced was so horrific. But I also had to be a person that they could come to and I could help them through this trauma. So we want to act like a human being and respond. When something you hear something horrific, you're going to have an, an emotional reaction. Um, and at the same time, you have to be the person that, that that individual needs. When they came to your organization, they needed a certain thing. So you have to find a balance. Some folks, I've, when I was first trained in the field, I was told never to cry in front of uh, someone that we were serving. It was unprofessional, you can't cry. Uh, other folks, uh, I received training later from other folks and they were the opposite. I said, act like a human being. You need to react like a human being when this person shares their trauma with you. If they trust you enough to share it with you, um, respond like a human being. So that may involve some crying. But if it gets to the point where the person that came to you is comforting you while you're crying, then you know you took it too far. <laughs> So you want to step back and make sure that you're being there for them. So there is a catch-22. The helper's effectiveness is strongly influenced by the degree to which the helper expresses authenticity, positive regard, and empathy towards the survivor. Unfortunately, the more empathetic advocates or uh, workers are towards survivors of trauma, the more likely they are to internalize the survivor's drama. So <laughs> to be really good at our jobs makes us vulnerable. So we need to learn about these things. If we plan to go into jobs where victimization or trauma occurs, we need to be aware of our limits on our strengths and our weaknesses so that we can keep, kind of keep an eye on how we're doing. So we need to take, take this seriously um, so that it doesn't become a problem for our organization. Compassion fatigue, if left untreated, can result in reduced job performance, increased mistakes, lower morale, damaged personal relationship, spark of deterioration of personality, and decline in general health. All of these things can have an impact on our organization, in addition to the people in our organization, the individuals. Um, if people are performing poorly, the rest of the organization has to pick up the slack. We may not uh, complete our grant deliverables. We may cause harm to the person that we're serving. 
Uh, mistakes can be really harmful when you're dealing with, say, if they're going through the court system or the uh, child protective services or foster care. Uh, you want to make sure that there are no mistakes along the way because they can be really challenging for the individual uh, to correct those mistakes, the individual um, child abuse victim or family member. So burnout leads to high turnover. That's expensive for your organization. High turnover not all High turnover not only increases the cost of providing services, but it may also destabilize helping organizations and prevent them from creating a high-functioning and cohesive workforce. Dropout rate research has indicated that professionals experiencing burnout may exhibit certain behaviors that cause clients to believe that the quality of care received is substandard. So let me say that again. Dropout research indicates that professionals experiencing burnout may exhibit certain behaviors that cause the people that they serve to believe that the quality of care is not up to standard. So the people that you're serving can see the burnout and they can see that they're getting lesser service. So what can we do to avoid vicarious trauma and to keep the people that we supervise or ourselves from experiencing compassion fatigue and burnout. One of the keys is to debrief frequently. So critical incident debriefing allows for a processing of emotionally laden experiences. So when I did staffings, daily kind of case staffings at the beginning of the shift and the end of the shift, we would sometimes do this, or if there was a large crisis in the organization, we might uh, do a critical incident debriefing. So these can be done for small scale or large scale traumas. And so the first stage, there are six or seven phases or stages. The first one is the fact phase. Uh, participants in this critical incident debriefing describe their job during the event and provide facts regarding what happened. The next stage is the thought phase. This is more, more personal elements are introduced as members of the group describe their first thought during the event. And then the reaction phase, number three, Members usually move from a cognitive to an emotional processing to answer questions like, what was the worst thing about the event? So we're going from a factual, this is what happened, to a more emotional, this is how we reacted. Then we talk about uh, our cognitive, physical, and emotional and behavioral sy symptoms during what we call the symptom phase, phase four. So what are you feeling? What are you thinking? How are you reacting? Is your heart racing? Are you breathing heavily? What is your emotional reaction? What are you thinking? Then there's the teaching phase. That's number five. Team members are educated about the stress reactions and how to alleviate them. And then the sixth phase is the reentry phase. This is where participants make supportive contracts or plan for follow-up activities. So supervision and peer support are really important during this uh, debriefing and following the debriefing. So you can go through these six phases to process uh, an individual trauma that was large uh, to help make sense of it in a, in a factual sense and an emotional sense. And this can help prevent vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. Effective leadership, emotional labor, the issues of vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, and burnout are important when we talk about human resource capacity. We need to make sense of this type of service 
in order to make sure that we have strong human capital in our organization. And we can identify when weaknesses occur and resolve them. And we can see this might be in conflict with our strategic management and our internal processes because this is a reaction. This is where we need flexibility and adaptability. This isn't something that we can schedule, but we can plan how we'll react and we can have tools in place to prevent it and to respond to it. So though this is a negative thing that can occur in an organization, there are a lot of tools that we can use to reduce its impact on the individual and the organization. Mm -hmm.